0: Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my... What? Counterpart. What? Cameron. What? No.
1: Michael, it is I, your twin. Oh, <laughs> no. No. <Nah! Nah! laughs> That's right. It's me, Noel Gallagher. Uh, Oh, oh, no. And I'm your other twin, (laughs) Liam Gallagher. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah, (laughs) I'm glad we're such a diverse... We like John Lennon. A diverse crew in terms of uh, accents here.
1: One of us sounds like this, and the other one sounds like this. They're very different. (laughs) (laughs) We like the Beatles.
0: Stupendous.
1: The Queen.
0: Uh, no, oh, not anymore. Sorry, she, I've got some may bad May she news. rest in peace. There we go. There we
1: go. Govna
0: <laughs> Core blimey. Skip to me, Lou.
1: We're dead. Whoa.
0: And scene. Wow. Oh uh, yeah. I. Uh, it's, I'm glad that I just managed to wait you out. Uh, I'm talking talking about,
1: sorry, I was, I I was getting, uh, I was getting some coffee. What happened?
0: Yeah, I was talking to my various dead twins who invaded the recording session for a little bit. Uh, Oh,
1: like, uh, Chad Beaumont's?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Dark Half by Stephen King. Uh, Oh, yeah, I read that book. Yeah, it seemed like it was going to be a big problem, but uh, I just waited long enough and then they all died. So (laughs) it's just like the book.
1: Yeah, that's what you do. You (laughs) just wait them out. Uh Yeah. You eat them and wait them out. That's what you do with them. That's what you do about a nefarious twin you don't want. You eat it and then you <laughs> wait it out. <laughs> this book
0: is 1989, uh, but I messaged you shortly after I started reading it, and what I said to you was something to the effect of like, "90 Steve is here, fully formed." Yeah, like if there's one thing that like you can say about us and our uh, uh, what we've what we're learning about Stephen King is that he just kind of like it's like he flips a switch. There's a state change and he's just there. You know, he started kind of fully formed with Carrie uh, and now he is like fully reformed in 90s, uh, 90s mode, which will I mean, we'll talk a little bit about here, I guess. But we're also going to talk about extensively as we begin to cover the 90s.
1: Right. Over like the next year and change. Mm hmm. Uh and by what we mean by that is that the dark calf is what we might call in like the the movie world, it's high concept. Mm-hmm. Like many of the novels that are coming up are, right? Like yeah. the stand is hard the high the, the highest high concept there is like Lord of the Rings in America, but that doesn't really fully describe, you know, like what happens in the stand. It's a big weird book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but The Dark Half is, ultimately, it's kind of a big book, but it's not weird in terms of, like, what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very linear, and it's basically, and we've talked about this with with a few different King novels, uh, but this is, like, the, the thing honed to a razor's edge. It's a story from Night Shift blown up into a whole novel. Uh-huh. Like, it's just, it's what, like, what if a guy had an evil twin that was his writer persona?
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, the end. Yeah, that's the book. That's i sorry. You stole the summary from me, but uh, I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we'll, well, I get bet we that. can
1: get more out of it.
0: Yeah, I'll try at least. Uh, and I also should say it might sound, uh, dear listener, that I, I don't know where, where you stand, Cameron. It might sound like we're all kind of down on this book. I want to come out swinging and say that uh, this is like this is a very, uh, average King book in many, many ways, and it is actually really, really good at that. Like, that there is a, uh, there is kind of a pleasure in, like, your your upper middle tier King, uh, that I associate a lot with the 90s, and I don't know if maybe that's, like, you know, this is, this we're heading into my era of Stephen King, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff that was actually coming out as I was starting to read it, so I don't know if maybe that just feels, like, nostalgic or comforting and familiar. Um, but there's just there's something as you say like the the razor's edge formula of take a story from night shift blow it up to a novel and just kind of like roll through it uh it, i think it really works here right this is uh yeah. yeah yeah it's it's what a friend of mine called in a different conversation uh, uh elite mids <laughs> <laughs>
1: the upper tier of the middle tier. Yes, exactly.
0: Exactly, right? And that uh, is not like me digging yeah. on it. This is me making a claim for like there is a pleasure in this, right? It's it's uh like it's not a firecracker like a, you know, one of the early 70s novels, uh but it's not something that's deeply unpleasant or or bad. Mm-hmm. Like there is something sort of uh it's it's almost like a the, the feeling that you associate with reading like a, a good mystery novel, right? There's something almost yeah. comfortable about it.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't. I, yeah, I think this book is good in terms of just like readability and fun. Like it's a fun story because it is there's not much to it. Right. And mm-hmm. very tactically, I think it has very and this is kind of why I was liking it to a short story blown up. It has very clear goals, and those goals are pretty low in terms of like what King is shooting for here, right? Like, this is a simple story, well told, and it does not have pretensions about doing something else. Like, Tommy Knockers or the Tommy Knockers especially given some of the response that we saw after that episode in good conversations. I'm not even, that's, I, that's not veiled in the terms of like, I'm not saying that to be like, and some people said that, that's not what I'm doing here. Like I, we had some pretty interesting conversations about Tommy knockers with listeners of the show and other people who read it after that episode came out. And I think that you and I were en- enchanted in that book in a way that some other people just weren't mm-hmm. um, with the like reach and desire. Yes. You know, like, Tommy, no- the Tommy knockers as a novel is trying to be this kind of writerly text. Uh, we had a conversation with like Joseph Fink, who's been on the show before uh, on a bonus. So you should go check that out if you haven't at uh, patreon.com slash range touch. And uh, we had a conversation about um, the the basically the first hundred pages. Right. This really slow, creeping thing with the dog and all that stuff. And you and I, I think, really like that and really like the turn that happens, at least after that. Mm-hmm. And I think other people are just not as enthused about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the reason we like that is the way it gets paid off in the way that... Uh, it has a kind of literary goal to it, right? It's, it's tr- Stephen King is trying to play in a different kind of novel space for a while. And I think the method of the show sometimes makes us, it allows us to discover really cool stuff. And it also asks us to focus in on things that I think just people who are reading the novel for fun might not care to focus on, which right. is like, what is going on here? Which is not to say that what we're doing is better than just reading the novel, but we have slightly different goals than just a, uh, you know someone reading the novel for fun. Mm-hmm.
0: We have a project here, right? We have to have kind of like, this is one of the ways, like I think uh, the internet is kind of uh, a weird place because for a long time, uh, what you did when you watched people sort of like vicariously consume media on the internet is that you were there to watch them like suffer and like to subject (laughs) themselves to things. Uh, And this is not that show, right? We like these books and we like Steve. And uh, this means that uh, we have to have certain goals in order to like keep ourselves going, and one of those goals is things like I don't know tracking the development of Steve's uh, ideas about technology from Carrie to the Tommyknockers, right? <laughs> right, right.
1: But also just like what stylistically, what's he going for? What are the references? What are the the goalposts that he himself is setting up, and how are they different from novel to novel? And I say all that to say that like the goalposts in the dark half are not the goalposts of the Tommyknockers. Mm -mm. They are not the the goalposts of misery, right? Right. Uh, But like a lot of the novels that we talked about in the early 80s and even the late 70s, right? This kind of makes up a a trilogy of novels about novelists Mm. in very particular circumstances, particularly addiction. Um, And so it's fascinating to see... What's happening in Misery, uh, you know, the the similar kind of ideas, what's happening with Guard in the Tommyknockers get slowly but surely boiled down to like a vis. you know, just a goop it's the 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 goopiest goop of writer misery Mm -hmm. that could exist and then cramming that into like the shotgun shell casing of a crime novel Mm -hmm. and not just a crime novel a slasher novel yes (laughs) and then just blasting someone in the face with it (laughs) like there's something so uh so joyous about this novel and that it just has it, it wants to ruminate about what's it like to be a writer and then also, what if there was a bad guy with a knife running around?
0: Yeah, and he was really and He was efficient. a scamp.
1: He's hes efficient. He's a fucking scamp. He's just hes just a rude dude with attitude. He's like doing all kinds of goofery to trick people. He, he's got like a fun interior voice, despite the fact that he's just an unrepentant fictional murderer guy. He's mm-hmm. from Mississippi for mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. reason. <laughs> I, it's, it's great. And you know, he's from Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. And I really wondered, is this, uh, oh God, uh, who's the guy who wrote The Firm?
0: Uh, John Grisham?
1: Yeah. Is, is this, is he aware of John Grisham at this point? I, I don't know. Uh, let's see. When does The Firm come out? Cause that's the big explorer. I think it's a couple of years later. Yeah. Oh, so A Time to Kill is 89. Oh, hmm. But I don't know. I, I think it maybe d- doesn't line up necessarily. But, uh, and I've, we, I've, of course, watched many. You should check them out, too, if you're listening to this. There are a couple long form, like, Stephen King and John Grisham get on stage and talk to one another things. Yes. <laughs> uh, including where you can see Stephen King say, uh, you should call him a commie simp. hmm And, uh, and it's, they're very funny. But I kept thinking, like, is this John Grisham? But I don't think the timeline works out. I don't think they knew each other yet. Um, because the time to kill was so, you know, was the big thing. Right. But anyway, I, I agree with you. I think it was like a very fun book. It's a very genre, genre ebook and its goals are pretty finite. Mm-hmm. It, it wants to be a fun slasher story. It wants to be a, a story about the profession of writing and how that works. And then it's like a little bit of meta commentary on uh, the Bachman thing and like mm-hmm. what happened there. Yeah not not much more not much less.
0: Yeah. I would actually go so far as to say that if you have not read a Stephen King book um and for some reason you aren't interested in kind of what everyone seems to agree are kind of the the you know golden classics of early career um especially you know that the those those first 3 like I think you said mm-hmm. it yourself on maybe the shining episode but like the The output of Carrie, Salem's Lot, and The Shining, one after the other, and then The Stand, which we were both kind of cooler on, but I still think The Stand is, is a unique achievement in, in the scope of things. Uh, if those four aren't interesting to you for some reason, if you want to know kind of what, the, what is the deal with Stephen King, why do you keep coming back to Stephen King after you've read all the quote-unquote classics, uh, you could read this book. Right. This is a book. This is a good book to read over a three day weekend and uh, have a good time with.
1: Right. Yeah, I think so. I think like you can read it in a couple of days. Like I, you know, it's a I think this is like the definition of like partially why Stephen King is so popular and fun to read is like. You can read this book and kind of blaze through it I think. I think you can move through this book pretty quickly and it it the pacing's really strong. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a book where I while reading it, you know, we've talked a few times about this, but like it kind of caught me and I would like catch myself reading a little bit more than I kind of planned to or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, I think it's great. I you know, I think in my big I guess I'm of two minds. On one, I, I would agree with you that like maybe read the first four, or you know choose one of the first four, and you can get a good sense for like what King is at his best. My other weird, uh, my my uh, evil twin <laughs> thinker about Stephen King would say you should read this book and Christine, and if you enjoy these two books, you might like Stephen King totally. You know <laughs> because because they're both summary books, right? They are yes. both books that reconvene and compress things that he has learned or themes that he has revisited and visited over and over again in the books previous to them right they're they're end of era books i guess maybe is another way of putting it Mm -hmm.
0: yeah uh i mean do you think i should talk a little bit more about the background context here or do you want me to jump into the summary and then we'll just go from there
1: Let's talk about the background context, because uh, this is one of the few episodes. My, my life has just been absolute uh, wildness recently, uh, mm-hmm. and you can listen to the last episode of our podcast Game Study Study Buddies for me to talk about that. If you yeah. want to hear about it, uh, but uh, but I, I didn't have a chance to like check out my newsletters and whatnot. So if you want to know like the deep background on the film and things like that that I would normally do, where Michael would normally do the literary history part, Mm-hmm. Uh, You can check out the bonus episode on the Dark Half George Romero film, which is also out right now at patreon.com slash range touch. But Michael, you have done the literary history part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me what you've learned, because I've I've um I'm like weirdly ignorant of this right now. Well,
0: so uh, one interesting fact is that we are nearing the end of the Castle Rock newsletters, uh, or at least the ones that I have. There might be maybe another year that might be in your possession. Uh, but I'm not sure about that. All I know is that in, in what I looked into in the Castle Rock newsletters, there is not a single mention of this book. I might've missed something.
1: Um, I, I did do a little flip through and I did not see, you know, it would normally have a cover, you know, uh dedicated to a new book release and I didn't see it. Now that doesn't mean it's not there, but I did not see it just flipping through it really briefly today before we recorded. Right.
0: So, uh, part of that is, uh, because there were a couple of things going on in King's life at this moment, uh, you know, back in the Tommyknockers episode, we discussed a lot about his, uh, addiction at this time. And, uh, Tommyknockers is a novel about addiction and so on. Uh, I went into this book with the mistaken presumption that this was like post sobriety, that this was like the first sobriety book. Uh, and in fact, that does not seem to be the case. It looks like Steve started writing this, uh, in the process of becoming sober. So you're actually sort of like sensing it happen, right? In some uh, attenuated or symbolic way behind the scenes. Uh, Grady Hendrix on the great Stephen King reread for Tor.com talks about this, uh, as does Lisa Rogak in her unauthorized biography. And it seems like um, maybe Hendrix is sourcing some of his claims from Rogak's book. Uh, But there are a couple of big things that happened with Steve at this point. Uh, One is, you know, he's trying to get sober. Like that's... uh, the big picture issue. Uh, And he's talked in interviews. And in fact, I believe I read some of this uh, last time Mm -hmm. that uh, like many uh, people with addiction uh, problems, uh, this was not just a decision to go cold Turkey, right? We had that intervention and then he like turned over his new leaf. There was a long bargaining period of, uh, you know, trying to think like, well, uh, and this is one interview uh, that I read with King that talked about this, you know, thinking like, well, what if I stayed sober for two months? And then uh, in the third month, I could, uh, you know, go on a bender basically, right? Like really thinking through like, how can I maintain uh, using substances while also continuing to write? Because, and I've mentioned this before, King is under the impression that there is something about uh, substance use that helps him write he is afraid that if he gets sober he will not be able to write mhm so
1: and, and is this tied to in the, in what you read here is this tied to the sabbatical uh
0: as far as i can tell yes right like steve kind of takes some time off to really uh reassess what's going on in his life and what he wants to do with it um, so some other big turnovers that happen. Uh King lets go of his agent, Kirby Macaulay, who I've mentioned before, a really important genre agent at this time. And of course, like if he's Stephen King's agent, he's he's important, but uh King lets him go. Um that's in and of itself interesting. I haven't found much of oh it, it wasn't made public, sort of the reasons for this, uh, but that mm-hmm. is like, that's a big change, right? To to take someone who has been there with you sort of professionally for, at this point, I would say maybe about a decade, uh, if not longer, and let go, uh, that's a move. The other thing that happens is, uh, we didn't touch on this because I guess it's not that important, but the Tommyknockers was published through Putnam, uh, not Viking, where Steve had been before, uh, he followed his editor because he had a good working relationship with the editor at uh, Viking who went to Putnam, so he followed him to Putnam, uh, released the Tommyknockers with them, and uh, that was it. That, it was that book, and after uh, the Tommyknockers, not only did he let go of Macaulay, but he backed away from that uh, editor, went back to Viking. Uh, we've mentioned also the radio station, uh, Weezon, uh, or Weezone. I'm not sure how uh, you would Pronounce that. Uh, I believe. I believe he favors zone, if only because I believe the um, like the the little corporate entity or whatever that technically uh, owns it is called like the Zone Committee, which I think is like a reference to the Boulder Free Zone Committee from the stand. Just FYI. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and also that one sounds like uh, whizzing on something. uh,
0: Uh, anyhow, that was, you know, Steve's <laughs> classic rock station where he just, you know, blasted all of his favorite hits. Uh, mm-hmm. and at this point he starts shifting that into more of a public radio station kind of model. He diversifies the type of music that is playing. Uh, one thing that I found, uh, this was specifically mentioned in Castle Rock because Castle Rock had a, uh, An article about this that King was implementing these changes at the radio station. Uh, There were going to be dedicated blocks to gospel music and also New Age music, uh, as well as more kind of uh, public radio style, like uh, news and talk radio segments. um, And it would be, you know, run through uh, grants and donations from listeners. Uh, So that's happening, right? That kind of project is. Uh, Changing shape in a way that suggests that uh, King's priorities are changing, right? Uh, And simultaneous with this, the Castle Rock newsletter is being phased out as King himself starts to withdraw from the newsletter from uh, reading it, it seems like, and also contributing to it, and then eventually it just, you know, shutters.
1: Yeah, there there are a lot of uh, issues I know over the uh, the Castle Rock newsletter. We should probably track one of the people down and interview them. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone has, as far as I can tell, no one has done that. Um, and we should we should probably do that at some point because it seems like there it was always troubled in some way, you know, of of getting out on time and things like that. And I've seen that through some of the personal personal correspondence that came with uh, the copies that I that I bought, um, but. Uh, Uh, but yeah, so in, in the Castle Rock newsletters that lead up to this, the reason I asked about the sabbatical is that King was announcing when it came out, you know, we talked about this a while back when it came out, he was saying, I'm going to take a break from writing. There will not be another four book year ever, and there might not be a book a year for a while. You know, I'm going to be working on that. So he's already kind of planning or thinking about some sort of productivity off ramp, essentially, Uh, And then Castle Rock says, I don't know which issue this is, but I've read this issue. It's somewhere 88, maybe 89. They say Castle Rock will stop being a newsletter. It will stop publishing monthly when King starts the sabbatical. But the weird thing is, and this is something we're going to maybe dig into a little bit more uh, in the stand uh, in in next month's uh, episode, is that the sabbatical uh, like conceptually maybe occurs somewhere here, Mm -hmm. but release timeline does not occur. I I think he only has a one year gap in this whole time period, right? It's like 89 to 90. There's nothing or something or nothing new. Uh,
0: It's actually uh, 1988 is the first year since 1978 that there has not been a new Stephen King novel. And that's not to say that nothing doesn't publish. Uh, right. That's also when the mass market edition of The Gunslinger comes out. And then uh, a shorter book called Nightmares in the Sky, uh, which is like a coffee table book that King uh, wrote with uh, photographer F. Stop Fitzgerald. Uh, that is a, yeah, it's a series of, it's, it's a, a collection of. <laughs>
1: that's very, that really got me. That's very funny. Yeah. And I think that's not the first time you've told me about that. And I've laughed immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really funny. F. Stop Fitzgerald. Yeah.
0: P- people have God. asked us if uh, we're going to cover it. Uh, I've looked into it. One, this is. Uh, a little harder to come by in uh, two. I think it is King just like briefly writing some like captions to photographs of like gargoyles. That's the, the subject of the the whole book mm-hmm. is just various photographs of gargoyles on uh, uh, churches and things. Um, so that was, that'll probably be like a bonus episode at some point in the future. When we get to the point where we're like really looking for weird things to talk about on the bonus episodes, I don't think it could sustain its own main episode that said mm-hmm.
1: We'll just have a we'll have a bonus episode that is just about the concept of gargoyles.
0: (laughs) Uh, And we'll uh, do like the entire history of them and talk Mm -hmm. about our favorite. We're also we'll watch the Hunchback of uh, Notre Dame.
1: Of course. Uh, We'll watch Gargoyles, the uh, the uh, the television program.
0: (laughs) Deep dive on all things Gargoyles. Right. Uh, But did you notice that there is a shout out to it in this book? I did not. Uh, so there is a, uh, uh, the photographer who takes Thad's picture for the uh, article in People magazine is trying to get him to write the text for a book on uh, a book of photographs that they've taken on uh, teddy bears.
1: Yes, right? I did know that. I yeah. didn't think about that being a reference, but I did notice that. I was like, that was a very funny and weird.
0: Uh-huh. So it's a, a little like, I guess, nod to uh, uh, this actual project that King was a part of. Anyhow. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of where this stands in the, the Stephen King, uh, situation. Uh, he has talked about, you know, being afraid of not being able to write if he's not using. And it seems like this is the book where in the, in the back half, uh, either in drafting or revising, uh, he really did kind of power through it and produced something that, uh, was his, his first, uh, uh, I guess becoming sober, uh, 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 Project um, and it's really interesting in that context is what I'll say we can we can talk more about that when we get to the specific plot details and what actually happens in this thing because uh, as you said this is another like the the addiction issues end up being on the surface here again right the the protagonist of this novel is also a uh, recovering alcoholic so
1: yeah and like the the uh, the addiction metaphor whatever it is right is uh, it's thin mm-hmm. but it's good mm-hmm uh you know uh well yeah we'll talk about when we get there well not to make you keep talking you know normally we try to pass this off back and forth bing bang boom but uh i think it is now appropriate that we jump into the five sentence summary of which you are the one who is doing it yeah yeah
0: (laughs) So the five sentence summary is the part of the show where we come up with uh, off the top of our head a summary of the book that we have just read beginning to end in five sentences. We are just coming up with it. We're not like taking a long time to read a Wikipedia article or anything like that. Uh, We are just trying to think of the five salient points that you need to know if you want to know anything about this book. So here it goes. The dark half. Thad Beaumont is a college professor and author of unsuccessful literary fiction. He retires a pseudonym, George Stark, under which he has written a series of wildly successful violent and bloody crime novels. Unbeknownst to Thad, uh, when he was a little boy, he had a fetal twin that he partially absorbed in utero, who was removed from his brain as a tumor when he was very, very small. The ghost of this dead twin, who is George Stark in some way, manifests in the real world and seeks revenge on everyone uh, who participated in his death with the goal of forcing Tad to, or rather thad, uh, to write a new book, a new George Stark book. Uh, then a bunch of birds eat him. The
1: end. Psycho Psychopomp! <laughs> Psycho. Psychopomp. Uh, dying in my massive mansion, looking at the fire, whispering, psychopomp. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's what happens in the book. It is. Why- so, OK, first controversy. Tad versus Thad. Mm-hmm. Which one is it? I mean, it's def- you're saying Thad it's- and you corrected yourself to say Thad. Yeah, it is Thad. Is Thad a name?
0: Yeah, it's- his name is Thaddeus.
1: Yeah, but is that not shortened to Tad?
0: It's it could be shortened to both, I suppose. But in the book, oh, I believe I it's shortened to Thad.
1: It is, but yeah. I, I didn't know I didn't know how to say it. Oh, okay. All right, well. <laughs> thad. <laughs> uh This book is uh it's uh, it's a little bit of a weird one mm-hmm. in the in that way. Let's talk about <laughs> Thaddeus Beaumont. I know, what a name. <laughs> So what's up with, so it's like sky dancers or what is the name of his novel? His like literary fiction novel.
0: I forgot to write this down because it's so good. Um, All I remember is that the book he's working on his new literary fiction book (laughs) that he's working on. Oh, oh oh it's called uh, the one that he wrote is called uh, the sudden dancers,
1: the sudden dancers. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, now what about this thing? Uh, uh, gosh, what? Sky dance? What's What's the name of Ben Mears yeah, book? Yeah, Ben Mears' book is Sky Dance. Uh,
0: and then the other book that uh, Thad is working on, it, uh, is called The Golden Dog.
1: Oh, Air Dancer. Air Dancer. It's Ben Mears' book. Okay. Yeah. We 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 flipped it, <laughs> <laughs> or I flipped it. Uh, the uh, but yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't what's up with I don't
0: know. I just I just, I love his titles. I love King's titles for literary fiction novels. <laughs> Cuz like what the yeah. hell is The Golden Dog about?
1: I don't know, but also you look at the New York Times bestseller list. What are it, what are it, Little Fires Everywhere? Right. <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> Come on.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that would if it, if if that were writing today, his new book would be called like a uh, Little Golden Dogs All Across the Sky.
1: <laughs> uh no, it would be uh, can, 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 here. You ready just to improv some? Uh, okay, some literary fiction. Sure. Cricket singer. <laughs> uh, new home, old home. <laughs> uh, uh, where the sand lays still. <laughs> uh, <laughs> true friends. Emptyville. <laughs> mm. it's some for some reason it's about the 1700s the manatee tango that, that's the 80s you're <laughs> you're keeping it up I, that, I was to say the
0: manatee tango is a uh, 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 tom robbins
1: novel <laughs> mm-hmm. white noise <laughs> uh the uh but yeah so he's uh, he's doing all this kind of stuff now tell me this this is a, a very weird and specific question but it's one i had and i thought maybe i missed something Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm and I want you to tell me if I miss something. Mm-hmm. So the the plot of of, of uh, Thad Beaumont uh-huh. is as as a child he's he gets his uh, he's having like um uh like symptoms of a brain tumor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He goes to the doctor. The doctor says, "Well, there's a clown in town." Mm-hmm. Uh, he does brain surgery. You got to mm-hmm. go to the clown. He goes to the clown. Clown pops open his. Uh, his noodle here, and there's like a dude in there, mm-hmm. right? There's like an ear and an eyeball, and it's written in a real gross way. It's got teeth. It's, oh, yeah, teeth, a bunch of teeth. Uh, so it's not a tumor. It's an absorbed twin. They extract it, throw it in the trash, whatever. Mm-hmm. Clown stitches him back up, sends him home. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on in life, as you said in the summary, right, we we come to find out through some cor- sort of like uh, Shining-esque Maneuver mm-hmm. that the twin that that well, twins have powers.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> just Like definitive. rule number one of this continuity. Yes,
1: right. Twins have powers. Uh, and when he absorbed his twin, his twin was was absorbed. Right, not not eliminated, but absorbed. With so he has like this other being inside of him. And that is writing these other novels, and that uh, that twin is George Stark. Mm -hmm. And then it manifests into the world as a physical being. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all this stuff is occurring. We learn about twin powers because Thaddeus Beaumont has twins himself. Mm -hmm. And we get these scenes where they're interacting with one another, and it's very clearly like, Psychic, you know Stephen King in the '70s psychic power stuff, mm-hmm. right? You know mm-hmm. they 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 have a kind of communication without communication. Uh, they they have sympathetic wounds, so one bumps its leg and the other one develops a bruise in the same place, mm-hmm. which is which is like a way of like building out the lore of this little uh, you know fictional universe that we have here. Mm-hmm. But here's the question I have for you. That's just setting the scene. Before George Stark is revealed, so before he you know gets rid of his alter ego,, mm-hmm. his wife is in the mall, and someone pushes her down the stairs. Yeah, causing her to have a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Was the person who pushed her down the stairs, some sort of previous iteration of George Stark?: I had sort of the same thought. But that doesn't ever come up. No. I, I didn't just miss it, right? It's just not in the book. No,
0: I, I I was wondering. So there are two ways I think you can spend this. One is maybe it's a previous iteration of George Stark. The other thought that I had was, oh, it's Jack Mort.
1: You, right, of course. I, yeah, I thought about that too.
0: Because the whole thing is like, oh my God, isn't not it isn't it awful to think that out there in the world, there's someone who gets their jollies by just like pushing people down the stairs or, you know, whatever.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, I just didn't... But, you know, it seemed to me like, oh, he's going to have kids, so he'll stop writing as much. Then, therefore, George Stark in in his, you know, uh, absorbed twin form will have less influence on the world. So he manifested... It just... Maybe it feels like a setup that doesn't have a punchline to it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe there was a punchline and I just somehow missed it. No. I, I, it sounds like I did. No,
0: nope, it's just kind of a background detail. Uh, really, the... One of the fascinating things about this novel is that I thought uh, his wife, Liz, uh, was mm-hmm. going to play a much bigger role than she did, because uh, the first half of the novel really kind of hits hard, this idea that Liz and Thad have become more of a partnership, mm-hmm. uh, because the, uh, Cameron already gestured at some of this, but, you know, backstory is Thad wrote a novel Uh, A literary fiction novel, it was a finalist for the National Book Award or something. It was very successful, is the point. But then he struggled uh, to write his next novel, and I think it got more middling reviews. And kind of in the middle of all this, uh, he thinks of this idea of like, oh, what if I, you know, wrote something under a different name? Like, what if I kind of like pretended to be a different guy and wrote a different story or a different type of story? Uh, And Liz is kind of encouraging him in this. And this is where the George Stark thing comes from. Uh, And it turns out that George Stark is wildly popular and sells like gangbusters, Uh, but while this is happening, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff is is also being layered on top of it. So Thad, when he writes as George Stark, drinks. Um, he gets meaner, mm-hmm. just dispositionally, right? Uh, so he's drinking, he's just getting meaner. And like when he's done writing, he kind of turns back to his old self. But when he's actually in the thick of it, he's he's much less pleasant. Uh, And this comes about at least partly also because uh, Liz has this miscarriage that really puts their marriage in a strained position, Uh, and we join them in the novel proper after he has already killed the Stark pseudonym. Uh, because it was going to be revealed by this other character who we'll probably talk about a little bit. Uh, but the the pseudonym is dead, and he's kind of, like, worked through his addiction stuff, and they feel like, both of them together, feel like they've kind of overturned uh, this dark period in their lives, and now they have these two twins, and uh, they're going to work together as partners in this marriage on more equal footing than they have before. Uh, and then by the end of the novel, uh, in a kind of very strange move, actually... Um, but an interesting move. Uh, things get a lot bleaker about this partnership of the marriage, uh, and it ends on kind of a real downer note.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, like, what's happening here is that structurally, and I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but this is what happens as George Stark becomes a bigger part of the narrative, mm-hmm. right? So the story has to focus on him, and he is in a different genre, right? Like Thaddeus Beaumont lives in, like, in, in the Kingian bourgeois novel, George Stark lives in a slasher, you know, mm-hmm. film essentially, right? And so as George Stark becomes the not just the driver of plot motivation, but a focal character, you know, in the novel, uh, the his, Liz has to get sidelined because she becomes literally actually uh some combo of a damsel in distress and the final girl, right? Mm-hmm. Like she she's those kinds of things. So it's actually really funny that like I mean, it's unfortunate, I guess, but it is is interesting to note that like genre overwhelms what seems to be a really cool like uh you know runway for her to do some really cool stuff mm-hmm. um something something that's fascinating to me about the castle Rock newsletter uh relationship to King that we've really been able to see here in the eighties uh has appeared to me in two ways, and I meant to mention it in the last episode, and I forgot, so it's a good place to put it. Mm-hmm. One, it seems that King has taken to heart the feedback he has received about how he writes women, mm-hmm. and he has made an active effort to change that mm-hmm. um and I think that there's been a pretty consistent uh depthifying right or focus on or a consideration of women that started in pet cemetery probably mm-hmm. uh you know in a serious way and has has progressed up through this novel he He is more interested in writing women um in a more fleshed out way, you know, than he was before that, I think. The second thing is that it seems like he took the response to Mike Hanlon, which was uh, you know, and we read that on in the it episode, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing of of King responding to people in the newsletter talking about race, where he was like, Well, look, for the first hundred pages, you don't know that he's a black man. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that like the best you could do here, right? And obviously the complexity of writing about racism is not just that, right? There, you know, there is a, um, it, it is not that uh, uh, characters are all reducible to some sort of fundament, right? Like mm-hmm. characters have a historical position. And Mike Hanlon as a character, uh, King plays in historical reality a little bit, but runs away from it in other places too in the pursuit of some sort of universalizable fundament of character. We talked about that in that episode, and we also talked about how in the Castle Rock newsletters that, you know, uh, black readers are writing in to be like, hey, wh- what's going on here? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on with these characters? And it in and, and K- Stephen King responds in a few places. Right. It was in Time magazine. It's in the Castle Rock newsletter. And he says, listen. I am writing about the realities of race in America and those are not nice realities and you should just deal with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, right. right. I, I don't feel, I don't, I do not think that I am uh, misrepresenting his thing. He's like, look, here's the way reality is. I'm showing you reality. That's how, you know, it's just what I do. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the next level of response is, meaning that I don't, it, it doesn't come up anymore in castle rock after that, as far as I've read, which could mean that castle rock is not publishing those letters. Or it can mean that people are have just kind of taken that as the definitive statement and are not interested anymore. And I haven't seen, even though I have tried to look at some other fanzines and things like that around the time, I have not found any place 86, 87, 88 where that's also occurring. Mm-hmm. I say all of this to say that then the next several books of Stephen King run away from, they're all about white people, right? Mm. Like they, they run away from, whatever he said was so important to him about representing race in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, so both of those things feel really interesting to me here at the late eighties is that he seems so much more interested in focusing in on women and thinking about gender. And as we're going to see into the early (laughs) nineties, right? He's going to hammer on that, you know, women become central in his work. They do. Yeah. Um, in a way that a lot of people actually reject. Yeah. you know, I, I we're, we're going to get into that. But it creates, I think, a schism in the, in the King readership. Um, but at the same time moves away from what I would say was a pretty consistent uh, inclusion of race. Or at least a discussion of race or representation of race uh, in the novels in the 80s.
0: Yeah, just looking um, at uh, the next sort of year and change of books we have. I can't think of... It's not until we're going to get to the Green Mile in 1996, and that's like the next book I can think of that has a a strong component uh, about race, right, that actually deals with that topic.
1: Yeah, it's all, I mean, it's about you know, uh, uh, a racially motivated conviction, right? right? But yeah, so I think, I you know, I don't have much to say about that other than just noting it, Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, that's part of what the show is useful for, is thinking about patterns and long duray in stephen king's work but but it, it does seem like he was so outspoken about that up through it mm-hmm. and into the drawing of the three right mm-hmm. i mean you know whether whether he's successful or they're or not that i think that's like a long conversation we obviously talk about that in the episode but he is focusing on it i think it's undeniable that he's trying to think through race in the united states and he walks as fast as he can away from that over the next like you know nearly 10 years and I think that's there's something interesting going on there that we could probably talk about going forward, mm-hmm. but. um What do you think about the Bachman element before we kind of talk about plotty plotty plot stuff because I think there's some fun plotty plot, mm-hmm. but obviously there's George Stark and Richard Bachman mm-hmm. going on here.
0: Right the the pseudonym who represents kind of the darker side the bleaker view of the author. Uh, I think Thad ends up saying this at one point that like, you know, the author always has like at least two people inside of him. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Noel and Liam Gallagher. <laughs> <I told you. laughs>
1: uh,
0: and, uh, I, I think what is, I mean, what is interesting about the actual situation in the book, right? Is that it sort of inverts, like it's a, it's an inversion of Steve's actual situation, uh, where the Bachman pseudonym was never as popular as King himself. Um, but here right. it's kind of reformatted, right? By, of course, it's it's being poeticized like this is, you know, authorial license. Uh, but here we get a realignment where it is the pseudonym, right? The non-person or the, the non-identity that is somehow successful and threatens to overtake someone's life. Uh, Rather than what seems to be the case with sort of the Bachman pseudonym, uh, having this (sighs) weird partitioned uh, uh, place where Steve was really putting a lot of stuff that kind of doesn't all work together. So like, you know, his, his experimental, like failed first novel from high school, uh, that was nevertheless pretty misanthropic and bleak, uh, plus like this science fiction novel also missed like the, the, the thing that, uh, runs through all the Bachman novels is the misanthropic bleakness, right? That kind of, right, uh, right. ugly, uh, orientation toward the world. Um, and I gotta say, In as much as this is also kind of the rerun at Misery, uh, it makes a lot more sense. That uh, you know, he, uh, Steve thinks through like, oh, okay. In what context would someone who wrote bleak nihilistic stuff actually maybe really work? Uh, let's. That's not horror fiction, right? We got to have that one degree removed. Uh, right. why not? Why not really bloody crime fiction? Uh, you know, like as you say, it, it, it's crime fiction that also borders on like slasher films or like giallo or something. Uh, and it's. Really successful, I think, in that regard. Like, I would, I would read a George Stark novel, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I would read Machines Way in a minute. I messaged you halfway through this book, and I was like, I wish that these Alexis Machine novels were real. I would read them immediately. And he, he actually in the afterword says that these are, uh, that Alexis Machine comes from Shane Stevens, mm-hmm. um, and uh, apparently. I I don't know, uh, Shane Stevens writes novel, I mean, the George Stark novels are kind of a pastiche, you know, the little sections we get of them, of this Shane Stevens author, but I don't, I'm not familiar with the work of Shane Stevens at all, I don't think I'd ever heard that name before. Uh, well,
0: I think it's, it's a pastiche of him, and also, uh, oh gosh, what's his name, hold on, I need to double check this, there's a, uh, particularly, yes, um, Donald E. Westlake, who was a writer of uh, multiple genres, but uh, particularly known for his crime fiction, he wrote a series of kind of comic uh, crime novels featuring this character named Dortmunder. Um, And as you can tell from even the name, right, it's a a kind of like, you know, here's some here's some kooky criminals who try to pull off a heist and uh, uh, things go wrong for them. Right. Those are like the Dortmunder novels. Um, but then he also wrote under the pen name George Stark uh, a series of novels about a character named Parker who is kind of like uh, I mean he he's a Lexus machine basically right a Lexus machine taken from the Shane Stevens novels but uh uh you know uh, this character who is extremely driven uh not d- doesn't have any qualms about. Per- perpetrating murder uh, and doing it mm-hmm. violently if if the need arises, um, and the writing style in the Stark novels uh, uh, are, is just totally different. Did I say that his? So the the Parker novels are written under the stu- pseudonym. I can't remember if I said George Stark.
1: <laughs> I think you did say <laughs> George Stark.
0: Yes, it's Richard Stark, right? Right. Right. So right. this is the other weird thing about what Steve's doing here is like not only is he like taking straight up character names, but he's just barely changing the actual other author's pseudonym, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of the, uh, um, you know, weird weird thing about King at this moment. I, I also started thinking about, like, reading these Alexis Machine uh, excerpts—they're very Clive Barkery too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in their kind of—I don't know—form. Well, the fact like Machine
0: uh, carries a the 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 thing the other thing that I think maybe needs to be said that will clarify this is that it turns out Alexis Machine, the fictional character, is like just literally George Stark, the the yeah. weird tulpa that uh, Thad has generated from his unconscious. Right? Like the 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 pseudonym is basic, like. There is this pseudonym that comes to life, and the character who the pseudonym was writing is basically the pseudonym's like self-insert, <laughs> and so they both uh, walk around with like these pearl-handled uh, uh, um, straight razors, right, and whip them <laughs> right. around, very giallo like
1: uh, th- This is also the funny thing too. Reading this novel because I've re- I've read this novel before, but like, and I could remember certain. I remember the sparrows <laughs> really clearly. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't really remember a big chunk of it. But I did not realize that also Heart Shaped Box is kind of a uh, the uh, Joe Hill novel uh-huh. is also kind of a rerun at this. Uh-huh. Um, they are very simple, extremely. Uh, uh, that is a novel I do not enjoy. I, I think Joe Hill is a perfectly fine writer, uh, but <laughs> I did I did not like Heart Shaped Box, in which uh, Ozzy Osbourne and his early twenties early twenties wife are uh haunted by a ghost with a straight razor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he, like lives in a box or whatever. <laughs> uh it, yeah, it's not that's not for me. Uh but it's very similar in kind of tone and also like um this kind of slasher villain kind of vibe.
0: Right. Here's here's some characters. Here's like the uh malevolent entity that's pursuing them. Right.
1: Uh I also like machines way. Mm-hmm. in that it's like this this additional like uh, weird mutation of swan's way uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which which is there i don't know that's a very a kind of kingy uh touch there but uh i don't know what what well, other stuff is going on here well did you have I, thoughts I, there, about there's... the bachman stuff
0: since that was you you threw that to me um and i kind of yeah. like swerved us into george stark territory <laughs> but if you had something else like another thought about bachman
1: yeah, well, it's, you know, there's this interesting thing that's going on between, um, there's an allegory going here between Beaumont and Stark, mm-hmm. uh, in that Bo- Beaumont's the, the guy, the, the family man. And Stark is the, you know, truly the writing machine, mm-hmm. right? Which, as you said, is, is the flip, right? Like, um, the, the, le- the slightly less successful, uh, kind of writer's writer that is, I you know, theoretically, um. Uh the the gosh, well, I'm blanking not the writer of thinner. Why am Bachman? I blanking on the name Bachman? Uh-huh. I don't know why I can't say the word Bachman. Uh that's the Bachman. And then uh George Stark is the Stephen King, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that the kind of writerly thing. Um, but then there's also like the sober, the sober Stephen King mm-hmm. uh and the uh addicted Stephen King, mm-hmm. right? George Stark is, you know, if, if the allegory holds, right? He is the writerly persona of Stephen King who, like, it can only work if he's shit face. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 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 the, the writerly um, face that you put on. And that's made really clear textually. Like, I've never been hit in the face so much with subtext, right? You know, it is the <laughs> Garth Marenghi only. Sub- <laughs> you know, I've met people who use subtext and they're cowards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it's done really artfully. I was really impressed with it um again it's it's thin right it's a pretty flat novel but like where where it's ticking, it's really ticking and i'm thinking here of the scene toward the end where george stark and thaddeus beaumont are like talking about writing Mm -hmm. um and his wife is there with her twins and they're being harried by george stark right they're being uh just you know threatened by this evil man who drives a sweet ass hot rod and he's got (laughs) a gun trained on a child right uh, and and they're laughing, and their laugh is the same. And we keep getting the POV from her, and she's looking back and forth from her husband to George Stark and going, holy shit, this is the same guy. Right. They are twins. They they are brothers. They are the same person. It is, um, yeah. And it's disturbing to her. I mean, we get all this POV of her being like, fuck, this is my husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that this is some part of him. And that just feels like, you know, you always gotta be careful, like uh r- writing is not biography, biography is not destiny, we know all this kind of stuff, right? We say on the show all the time, and you have to be careful about that, but it's it's really hard to dodge this here. It feels so purposeful for of him being like, Look, I'm a different guy when I'm drinking or when I'm on uppers or when I'm on downers or when I'm drinking mouthwash, mm-hmm. right? And I'm a different guy with the kids. But at the end of the day, I'm still Steve, right? Like, I'm still that same guy. Mm -hmm. They're not extricable from one another. And what will happen if I lose the other guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if I lose Stephen King, the author? in
0: me? Yeah, I loved that scene, too, uh, for a couple reasons. One is that the way it is written, it is another uh, rerun at something we talked about last episode. It's the end of Animal Farm. (laughs)
1: where uh
0: they look through the window at the farmhouse and they see the pigs uh at the table like wearing human clothes and they can't tell who's who's a pig and who's a who's a human anymore right uh like it is written in that precise like cadence and tone except it's being totally reformatted to (laughs) this like crime slasher novel about uh, a doppelganger right um and that's just really fun uh, the other thing that is so cool about that is that uh, Thad and George Stark are not identical. They look very, very different. Uh, if you're for, if you're familiar with the film, uh, which we'll have recorded a bonus episode on and you can talk about, uh, or you, we've recorded a bonus episode on and you can hear us talk about uh, at patreon.com slash range touch, uh, the actor playing both people is the same. They cast the same guy and had him do a dual role. Um, So they are closer to being like physically identical. But what's so cool about Liz uh, seeing them talk about writing and kind of like laughing together is precisely what you're saying. Like they don't look like the same guy, but it's like it's the small things, right? It's the way that they like sit in their chairs. It's the way that they laugh, like these small tell mannerisms uh, that makes her like realize like, oh, these are fundamentally like the same guy on some level.
1: Yeah, that at their core, in their their, their being is the same, uh, you know. And a couple of people mentioned earlier in the book too that like they walk in a similar way or they carry themselves in the similar way, right? Mm-hmm. It's something about mannerism. It's something about drive. It's something about a way of being, right? Mm-hmm. Not just a way of looking. Uh, it's great. It's just so well kind of handled and and weaved through. And again, I I you know I can't. This is not a Tommy Knocker situation. This is not a Tommy Knocker. This is not a situation where I think like, holy shit, the novel like is overwhelmingly good and it does not deserve the reputation it has. I think the Dark Half has the exact reputation it deserves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's there are these glimmer moments of like, oh wow, he really he really did the did the stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um
0: Do we want to talk about 90s King that we mentioned at the beginning and and Say a little bit about what that means in this context.
1: Oh, uh, no, I think we could save it. OK, well. <laughs> I mean, do you want to talk about it? It Sounds like you want to talk about there's it.
0: there's one specific thing I want to think about uh, that okay, to please. me is indicative of what I mean when I say 90s King, which is uh, a kind of goofiness or corniness Mm-hmm. That has always been present, right uh Steve has always been a bit of a scamp. he's always liked his jokes his his uh you know the the like scene in it of the the doctor, the elderly doctor who insists on going out for his walk, even though Derry is having its worst storm in in uh three decades, and the manhole cover whips up and like cuts off his head, right that's presented as a very sort of like uh you know gallows humor kind of scene mm-hmm. um uh. For me, I think 90s King uh, gets a little less roguish in its humor. Uh, there, there was something a little like, you know, uh, gleeful subversion in earlier King that kind of walks back in the 90s. And the biggest example of that in this book for me is the dream sequence that. Thad has early on, where he goes into his uh, lake house. He and his wife have a, a house on Castle Lake. This is a Castle Rock novel, by the way, which we'll also talk about in a bit. Um, uh, but he go, like, he has this dream, and it's uh, a presentiment of his final confrontation with George Stark. But in the dream, he walks into the lake house, and everything he touches explodes, And it's just described in this very bizarre matter of fact way where like he touches the, um, the light switch on the wall and it just like rockets off or like cracks. And then he like walks into the kitchen and he like looks at the oven and it's like the, you know, the whole house is like a little dark and a little spooky. It looks like no one's been there for a long time. And then like the oven cracks open and within the oven, he can see like a gross, foul, like rotten turkey that had been cooking. And it's just like, (laughs) right. You're giggling, right? Like. It's it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, little it's a little goofy. It's like this isn't really scary. It It is kind of setting tone or atmosphere, but it's not really scary. It's just a little goofy. Uh, and that's what I feel like is goofy here. Or rather that's. Yeah, yeah.
1: you know, and maybe maybe we might have misspoken earlier when we said that. In, and I've set us down this path of like this is a night shift story blown up to 600 pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's maybe not right. This might be a creep show <laughs> blown up to 500 to 600 pages, mm-hmm. right? Like, I do think the 90s, I think you're right. I think that goofiness and the kind of playfulness, in uh, playfulness that doesn't have to resolve into, like, a gritty reality of blah, 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 whatever mm-hmm. horror novel stuff, I I, I kind of consider it, the, you know, the creep, so, creep showification of Stephen King mm-hmm. in the 90s. He's happy to tell a little story where Leslie Nielsen kills some people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, yeah. and that's okay. He's got that little fart machine; it's funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, th- I I think so. And, but also, weirdly enough, it like in the '90s, Stephen King oscillates back and forth from lightly goofy thing to a novel about women being tortured, mm-hmm. and then a life lightly goofy thing, and then a novel about women being tortured. Um, it, I do weirdly enough think that the uh 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 uh, uh God, I'm, why do I keep doing this? his alter ego Bachman Bachman what is happening to me <laughs> what is going on Uh, the Bachman rhythm keeps up through the 90s mm-hmm. it, there's just no more Bachman to hang those novels on right you now
0: well except for the ones that you know Bachman is brought out of the closet specifically to hang some stuff on
1: yeah but for the one Bachman book for or the one from the 90s because there's one from the 2000s yeah. right? there's one from the 90s and the one from the '90s is so far away from any other Bachman book that I don't even know why he put that name on yeah, it. Um, it. Yeah, for the conceit. Yeah, yeah, right. The double, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll talk about it. I'm excited about those when they show up, mm-hmm. but um, what what a bad novel, or not? I mean, it is a bad novel, I think. But what a bad conceit to waste the Bachman name on, I think. Yeah.
0: Um. So uh, I read a couple of reviews for this. Uh, like contemporary to its publishing. And one thing that I think is interesting, uh, that is mentioned by just about every review is people complaining that the supernatural element is unexplained. Uh, what? Yeah. They're like, it's not explained clearly enough. And this is weird because (laughs) this is very funny because almost all of them also remark like, normally he can't help but explain stuff. (laughs) It's true. Uh, <laughs> I do. I feel like he does over explain it still yeah. somehow. Right. Well, that's what I thought was so weird is that so many of the reviews mention that uh, the supernatural element feels unexplained because to me, it's just like it's very clear. Like uh, a, a detail that I haven't mentioned uh, until this point is that. Um, When Thad is a kid, he decides he's going to be a writer and he starts writing and this is actually what spurs on the growth of the tumor in his head. This is a thing that the doctor observes where it's like, oh, this must have been like dormant. These cells would have been dormant. uh, And then something recently has like kickstarted their development. And now they're like metastasizing into like another body inside of his skull. Um, Mm -hmm. So like. Thad starts writing, and that like activates the the cells in his brain that would have been his twin brother that are now becoming George Stark. What have you? Um, the tumor gets removed, and uh, you know the everything happens as I've already said. Like. Thad grows up. He has the pseudonym. He decides he's going to get rid of the pseudonym because he is being blackmailed by a guy named Freddie Clausen, who thinks that he can uh, get some money out of uh, letting letting the world know that uh, demure literary fiction writer Thad Beaumont is secretly bloody crime fiction writer George Stark. So he takes that opportunity to just kill the pseudonym, uh, and just sort of magically right, uh, uh, through supernatural shenanigans. And this is what I mean when I, or I guess this is what people mean when they say that's not well explained is that precisely how this happens isn't walked through. Uh, but just George Stark shows up. He like busts up through the ground in the place where they held a fake burial for him and then goes on his murder spree. Uh, he is trailed the entire time by a bunch of sparrows. We will talk more about this, but we eventually learn that sparrows are psychopomps, which is to say uh, (laughs) things that uh, entities that can escort uh, spirits to the land of the dead. Um, And how the novel ends is the sparrows, the psychopomps, take George Stark to the land of the dead. So uh, I think there was another interview that I read with uh, King where he said something like um, you know, the George Stark is the ghost of Thad's twin. Like, that's it, pure and simple, right? (laughs) Yeah, they say that. Yeah. That's in the book. Yeah, So I don't know why people say it's not explained, because
1: there it is. Also, twins have psychic powers. Just go with the flow. Right. Reviewers of Stephen King novels. I can't, I, I don't think I will ever be in a position where I wish that Stephen King... Had explained something more than he did. <laughs> oh, it's like, where'd that big oil monster come from? They're just standing on that raft, and there's a big old oil thing there that eats their flesh? Where'd it come from? <laughs> this is like uh, Stephen King tweeting that Pennywise and Randall Flagg are the same thing. <laughs> just,
0: yeah, there you go. Explain it now.
1: Yeah, that's uh, here. uh, And also, George Stark is Pennywise. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. It feeds on your writerly energy. What do you think about. uh, So, oh, okay. Maybe I should say this. The reason we're not talking plotty, plot, plot is that the plot is very linear. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not a lot going on. I do kind of like that it is a. uh, (laughs) Like, the first half's a crime story in which uh, crimes don't happen. Uh And then the second half is a slasher story. Uh, In which the the crime investigation is forgotten about entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Because like the first time, the first thing comes up, okay, they they go and they do a photo shoot that is for uh, George Stark, you know, putting him to rest. Ha 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 ha. Uh, Because the pseudonym is dead. Because they did like a People magazine interview where he revealed that he was George Stark. The mild manner, mild mannered instructor, writing instructor at a university. At, isn't he at Horlicks? Isn't that true? No, he's
0: not. He's at, um,
1: uh. Oh, because he's in Maine. Right,
0: he's in Maine. And I can't remember if they ever named the university that he's at. But you're right to ask that. Because, well, we'll talk about it in the king This is a really anomalous okay. detail.
1: <laughs> it is. It's so great. I was really happy to see it. But again, the creep showification of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway, so they go and do that. It, they do this photo shoot, blah, blah, blah. It gets out. George Stark is killed, right? The pseudonym is killed because he reveals that, uh, that was him the whole time. He's not going to be writing any more of these bestseller novels. That everyone loves, whatever. The, the ghost of George Stark explodes out of the ground mm-hmm. and starts running across the country doing murders. Mm-hmm. He murders uh, a guy who's like just a local cool guy uh, He takes his uh prosthetic arm off and beats him to death
2: with mm-hmm. it.
1: awful slashery, you know, whatever the local sheriff who is now like the third sheriff that we've learned about since Bannerman. Isn't that right? I don't know. Uh, They run through it very briefly yeah. in the book. I think I think there is a sheriff in the middle and then there's him and he's been there for like 15 years or something like that. But he's still the new sheriff, the new guy in town, mm-hmm. you know? Because he'll never be like Bannerman, yeah. who got his butt bitten apart by Cujo, the dog. <laughs>
0: yeah. Alan Pangborn will never live up to to Bannerman getting right. murked by a dog.
1: Right. And so <laughs> right. He caught that serial killer though. His like number two guy. <laughs> but Bannerman is truly like a, a like a disgrace who is revered <laughs> in the in the Kingiverse, right? For no reason. <laughs> Uh, he did not solve any crimes. The guy who was murdering everyone was literally standing beside him constantly while it was happening. And then a dog killed him, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, but, uh, so this creature, you know, George Stark, this murderer, we don't know much about him at this point, but he's rolling across the countryside doing murders left and right. Mm -hmm. Alan Pangborn, the new sheriff shows up and then he does an investigation. That just it's just him talking to people and it's talking to people who can't really explain much to him because what is occurring is unexplainable, (laughs) Right. Right. Like it's it's mysterious and supernatural. So he's like, gosh, golly, I don't know. We did. We uh, we we did a test of all the fingerprints everywhere. And dang it. It's Thaddeus Beaumont's prints. Mm -hmm. But he's got a rock solid alibi. He was at a faculty party where Stephen King gets to write about everything he hates about academics in there.
0: And then uh what I love about this right is that uh we get the um the mystery writer version of this where uh, Thad <laughs> yeah. is like like Thad and uh, Pangborn sit down with each other and Thad is like now I bet you're like a canny sheriff so you would have thought that uh I could have had a secret twin brother all this time who took my place at the faculty party while I went down to New York City to kill like his editor and his agent like it doesn't really matter who George Stark kills right he kills Kills the guy who wanted to blackmail him to uh, uh, disclose or to not disclose the pseudonym, and then he kills uh, like various professional contacts of, of Beaumonts. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, like, I love that part where Thad is like, listen, I know this is going to sound nuts, but then he explains like this, uh, just very obtuse, like classic mystery novel gambit of like switching out with my secret identical twin brother. Uh, and Pangborn is like, yeah, you're right. I did think of that, but it turns out that you don't have a secret twin brother. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And even if you did, he wouldn't have your fingerprints, so that doesn't make
1: any sense. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, and he does that for about nine more things. <laughs> yep. Eventually. Of course you thought maybe I was wearing a blonde <laughs> wig, but I would never wear a blonde <laughs> wig. <laughs> like that. And so it's funny. It's like an investigation of a thing that cannot be investigated, but we have to run through every possible option. And it's a little tedious, but it's also a little bit fun, mm-hmm. right? To be like, "What is this thing?" And I get, but I'll be honest with you. Maybe if you're listening to this episode, it's not fun to read because you know that it's it's a, a ghost twin, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is something about the 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 surprise to it that is funny mm-hmm. and fun. Well, I love that. Like, Thad puts it together really
0: quick. Thad and Liz both put it together really quick. They're just like, My God, like we've eliminated all of our options, and it must be that like I have some sort of weird psychic double twin thing. Uh now to find the pr- appropriate way to tell the sheriff this.
1: <laughs> yep. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. And then the sheriff goes, Alright, I guess I'm on your side. Let's go fight this ghost. <laughs> Uh, what is George Stark's um, his uh, 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 bumper sticker? Sorry, I couldn't come up with a word. I'm having like a real, uh, like a fast oh, oh. set of moments today. It's like a real hard ass. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a
0: high toned son of a bitch.
1: High toned son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> on, God, on the uh, it's like the bumper sticker on his black Toronado that he drives around.
1: Right. Oh God. I wonder if that's a shirt. The um Oh I got I gotta see if high tone son of a bitch. Yes! <laughs> Vintage 1989 shirt oh, on eBay. Great. It's like a throwback shirt. It's not literally oh. a, a thing. But yeah, so someone someone's done it. Mm-hmm. It's got oh, there's one on T Public. It's got switchblade on it. It's the same one. Yeah, the,
0: the scene that I really someone love made- is uh when So because this is a Castle Rock story, Thad and his uh, wife live in Ludlow, which is where the Creeds lived in Pet Cemetery. So -hmm. I guess presumably he's teaching at the same university where uh, Lewis Creed was the head doctor or whatever.
1: Wasn't that like the University of Maine? Maybe
0: it was. Uh, I can look it up. Anyway, Uh, but they have a summer home in Castle Rock, right? A lake house. And, uh, you get this, uh, brief moment where the guy who lives in Castle Rock, who has, like, an old barn that he doesn't use, except he, like, rents it out to summer people so they can store their cars there during the summer, um... Uh, yeah. like the you know, it's not like it's off season, so he shouldn't have anything in there. But he like hears something out in his yard, and he goes out, and it's the black tornado has just like busted out of the barn and is driving off. I love that the fact that it can just manifest a car too, like fantastic.
1: Uh, deeply shocking that it's not Christine. <laughs> it's so easy to make this car, Christine. It is. Every car should... Christine should show up in every Stephen King novel. <laughs> like the little
0: cameos. The Stan Lee of the King of Earth, Christine. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, George Stark eventually... So here's what he wants. I'm sorry, I said all of that earlier stuff to work to this point, which is that we find out that when he's writing the George Stark novels he's writing like George Stark is working through his body. Mm -hmm. Thaddeus Beaumont's body. Uh, And basically what George Stark wants is that he's been killed, you know, in big quotation marks, right? He's been eliminated as a pseudonym and he wants to be written back into the real world, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is like having Thaddeus Beaumont sit down with a pencil in his hand because that is the way that, uh, that George Stark writes. And writing one of these novels and he's like into it because it's fun.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I want to bring a thing up. Do you remember what we talked about? I think it's right before Tommy knockers that Stephen King was using a, um, uh, what, uh, gosh, not a, <laughs> I want to use this, I want to say the word teleprompter, but that's not right. Uh, a word processor. Mm-hmm. And then he stopped using a word processor mm. in the late eighties. I do. Remember he took a break this. and went back to longhand for a while. <sighs> that's right hmm it's interesting to me and he's going to do that again yeah well yeah i I don't think on purpose though yeah i'm
0: just i'm just thinking like the the next longhand novel i'm aware of is Dreamcatcher, and that's like
1: (laughs) right right that's a relapse novel so that oh that's wow that's true i Mm -hmm. didn't think about that that is a relapse novel um but yeah anyway so he does and it's cool you know Mm -hmm. there's like some uh you know fantasy novel ass stuff happening here where like george stark is reinvigorated because this whole time that that george stark is it is really good that george stark's running around in the world is like clocks running out Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he's melting Mm -hmm. and he's developing like big sores on his body it's really similar to the uh well it's kind of a doubling up of the radiation stuff that was talked about in tommy knockers and then the kind of um Decay of the body, you know, transformation of the body stuff that's also in Tommyknockers. Mm -hmm. Um, But here he's decaying, like actively decaying Mm -hmm. uh, because he's like not being written into the world, essentially. Mm -hmm.
0: And he can't write on his own. This is another really uh, cool thing is like. Uh, he tries to write on his own, uh, but all he can write is, like, uh, sort of scribbles and nonsense and, like, certain words, like sparrows. So, like, Thad is seeing, like, sparrows everywhere, and he's having, uh, like, visions of sparrows. And when he was a kid, uh, the sort of sensory uh, uh, trigger or, like, the presentiment, right, uh, in the same way that sometimes when people are having strokes or whatever, they smell burned toast or something like that. Um when thad was going to have a seizure when he was a kid he could he would hear sparrows chirping um and he uh starts sort of hearing that again uh seeing sparrows everywhere and uh in at george stark's crime scenes uh he's often writing on the walls the sparrows are flying again uh but thad puts together that george stark doesn't know that he's writing this that this is a thing he's unaware of uh and when Stark tries to write, one of the things he will just like write over and over again is just the phrase the sparrows are writing again, but he has or are flying again. But he has like mm-hmm. no uh he 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 cannot like think a thing and then write it down, right? His like hand always gets away from him. It's really cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh I I yeah, I like the section of writing. I was trying to think of like the or I was trying to find the page, but I don't think I have it here marked. Uh, But where George Stark is trying to write, uh, and he just can't, Mm -hmm. uh, er, and he's like doing it, and he's like, this looks pretty good, right? This is like pretty good stuff. And, And Thad looks at it, and it just has sparrows written all throughout it. He like just can't get it out.
0: Right, it it's like uh like a uh, machine walked down the hallway thinking about the sparrows. Uh he looked up at the sky or he looked up at the sparrow which was sparrowing across the sparrow. Like he he clearly right. doesn't like he can't tell when he's writing those words. It's it's great. He also can't yeah. see the and sparrows, he- like the literal actual sparrows that are around, like they're invisible to him. Right.
1: Uh yeah, I think that's great. I think it's fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh and then, as I said, like, it turns out that the Sparrows are psychopomps. And uh, when Thad, we learn this through, like, the supporting character at the university, like the, the kooky old folklore professor.
1: Yeah, he's a, a folklore and mythology professor whose Volvo has never driven above 35 miles an hour. Yes. And he gives Thad his his car. Mm-hmm. The uh, the scene where Thad uh, dodges the, F- or not the FBI, but, like, the state following him around. Mm-hmm. That's fun.
0: It is. Uh so Thad is like sort of conjuring these sparrows. He they all come to the lake house which is where Stark has taken. He's kidnapped Liz and the twins. He takes them to the lake house. Uh it's just like covered in sparrows. He and uh Thad like Stark and Thad have like their sort of duel to the death where they're like riding back and forth. They're like taking turns. Uh, And then the Sparrows just like bust in and start attacking Stark and they like peck him to death and like eat him and then like pick up his corpse and like carry it out the wall.
1: Yeah, and they uh, this is this whole time. He's like menacing the twins Mm -hmm. with a gun Mm -hmm. like George Stark's a real piece of work. You know what I mean? And uh (laughs) I don't know. And the sheriff is there for some reason. Well, so just to kind of like make the novel work, you know? Right. He's there because he's
0: the one who can be like, "Okay, I saw all this wild crap that happened. I believe it. And now I'm not going to like investigate anymore or try to press charges on you. I'm in fact going to help you burn down your lake house to cover the evidence.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but not burn it down too much because that'll burn down the woods. Right. And that's unacceptable. (laughs) Uh, And then the novel's done. Mm hmm. Oh, I guess another cool thing that happens here is that George Stark shows up and there's all kinds of like machinery that happens in here about like, uh, uh, Beaumont talks to George Stark on the phone when his phone is tapped, but uh, he needs to talk to him when his phone is not tapped. So he has to go to certain locations and do it. Also, they have a psychic connection to one another so they can kind of have second sight through each other's eyes a little bit mm-hmm. and what you know, whatever. All this stuff is happening. So they're like... There's some machinery that's happening in the middle here. Um, but I do like the fact the fact that we get uh, all these like cutaways to Liz, who's like, you know, she's being abducted by George Stark and kidnapped and all this kind of stuff. And she's running through the house, like putting scissors in her underwear and stuff to like really get him, give him mm-hmm. a give him a murder. Um that that's fun. It's fun to me. It's like like I said before, you know, it's like this half damsel in distress thing and half final girl stuff of like She's preparing for the final confrontation. And ultimately, that kind of doesn't matter too much Mm -hmm. because uh, 10 billion sparrows fly in. (laughs) Yes,
0: there's just like there are scenes with her and Pangborn, the sheriff, and they're just like, oh, my God, all these sparrows. Like, that's what they do in the final quarter of the book.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty wild uh i think that's kind of it i mean that you know sometimes we have these uh titanic episodes but that's kind of what happened in the book and i think that's kind of how we felt about it, it it's fun i mm-hmm. you know i enjoyed reading the book and i agree with you i think if you're gonna like just pick a book at random this is a pretty good book at random to choose Mm-hmm. to get a sense of like what stephen king is up to yeah that kind of thing Mm-hmm. so uh with that in mind
0: you want to do some segments sure let's do a segment okay My favorite Kingism is the segment where Cameron and I choose something from the book that we've just read, a sentence, a word, a phrase, uh, something about sort of the, the plotting or the prose style that to us is indelibly Kingian, right? Just characteristically of Stephen King. Uh, and I'll start, uh, my favorite Kingism for this novel is the sparrows themselves. Like the, my memory of the dark half has always been pretty positive, but part of that positivity has been because, uh, I love the way the sparrows work in this novel. Like they are a total deus ex machina, right? Like, let me be clear. Like there's, uh, it's just like the, the sparrows slowly accumulate until there are a lot of them. And then they like swoop in and they destroy the evil or whatever. Um, but in terms of like, atmosphere and kind of just general weirdness of it uh i just really Mm -hmm. love the 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 sparrow conceit um and i should also maybe just flag that this seems to be a king referencing well uh, a a novel or novel an interview that i read suggested that they weren't always there The, the sparrows weren't there from the beginning they were added Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know when or how King got the idea, but he said that there was something about like the final third of the novel didn't come together until he got the idea
1: for the Sparrows. Uh, (laughs) I regret to inform Stephen King, the final third of the novel does not come together. Still (laughs) Sparrows are not literally they burn down the house and just go. Well, I guess that's it. And then the book ends. <laughs> like, it, People like, you know, we've talked on the show. People like to talk about Stephen King not being good at writing endings. This book doesn't have an ending. It just, The stuff just stops happening, which is fine. Well, I don't actually think it needs much more than that.
0: But it's because it doesn't need an ending because the Sparrows are so damn good. Uh, I, I guess so. Yeah. And this is, I think, partially stolen from H.P. Lovecraft um, in the story of. Uh, uh, The Dunwich Horror, uh, Mm -hmm. which is about a pair of like satanic, evil elder god twins, um, one who is visible, Noel and and Liam Gallagher, (laughs) Liam Gallagher, who steal the the Necronomicon from the Harvard Library. Uh, No, there's like two twins. One is like uh, he's visible. He looks mostly human. Um, And then it turns out like you think he's the bad guy of the story. And then like the twist in that story is that, no, he has a twin brother and the twin brother is invisible and much, much bigger because the thing that was their father is like this interdimensional horror deity thing. Uh, And one of the what happens at the end of that story is that a bunch of whippoorwills. Um, like, carry that thing off to, you know, Space Hell or wherever Lovecraft uh, decided to dist- store his entities. Um So I think that's maybe one of the intertexts here.
1: Yeah, also the fall of the House of Usher, right? Obviously not the bird thing, but the kind of mechanism here of, mm-hmm. like, the action builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and the only thing you can do is just have it collapse, and that's, like, it, right? Right. Like, you know, I I think that that's a... um. Uh, structural part of horror, period, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think when people poke at Stephen King's endings, which they're right to poke at, right? You know, they're not always the, the most graceful landing. But I think that's often ignoring that within the genre he is working in, that <laughs> things just stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's like part of the history of the genre itself, right? Like, you dump the crate in the lake. Right. At the end. <laughs> uh, someone else's problem now, right? Right. Uh, you uh, the gremlin turns into a uh, into a fountain. At the end. <laughs> just deal with it, Billy. Uh, I will I will say just one additional thing. I am not as taken with the sparrows. I think it works fine, mm-hmm. but I actually really don't like this. Like the conceit, the psycho I th- I would have pre- preferred literally anything else. <laughs> I think it would have been better <laughs> if Liz had just stabbed him to death. Yeah, you know what I mean, and then like the horror of. Um, because that haunts the end of this novel, right? Like is George Stark gone? Yeah. Right. Is my alcohol, you know, uh, uh, uh allegory here or metaphor here is the, is the alcoholic Stephen King gone, right? Like mm-hmm. it's always latent. The, the, uh, the drug addict is always latent. And there's a little bit of the, uh, you know, 12 step program here, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of that kind of thing. Um, and you know, that haunts the end of it. And I kind of think it'd been better if she had killed George Stark. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. But, uh, I'll, I'll run through that actually in the King of a little bit. Cause I have more to oh, say sure. on that.
1: Uh, but I feel the same way. This is our split. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, and maybe we'll see this more in the nineties. is mm-hmm. you know, one of the very few times where we, we have truly been at opposites of something. I feel the same way about this as I feel about the pilings. Mm-hmm. And you really like the pilings. And you were like, I don't like either of these. Like, OK, at all. so mm-hmm. I think it's a you know notable, and interesting moment. Uh, my what my favorite kingism here is and you can pick any of these, but it is when the novel shifts over to having POV sections for George Stark. And it's not just describing him murdering people, but it's him thinking. So like this is 306 in my hardcover, I think, first edition, weirdly enough, of uh, of the dark Catholic at the library sale. Uh, suddenly he wanted to burn the charming white house to the ground, touch a match to it, or maybe the flame of the propane torch he had in his pocket of the vest he was wearing, and burn it flat to the foundation. But not until he had been inside. Not until he had smashed the furniture, shat upon the living room rug, and wiped the excrement across those carefully stenciled walls and crude brown smears. Not until he had taken an axe to all those oh-so-precious bureaus and reduced them to kindling. What right did Beaumont have to children? To a beautiful woman? What right, exactly, did Thad Beaumont have to live in the light and be happy while his dark brother, who had made him rich and famous when he would otherwise have lived poor and expired in obscurity, died in darkness like a diseased mongrel in an alley? None, of course. No right at all. It was just that Beaumont had believed in that right, and still, in spite of everything, continued to believe in it. But the belief, not George Stark from Oxford, Mississippi, was the fiction and that's like george stark thinking in you know in his genre terms uh-huh. but about the other character in the novel you know what i mean like the language or diseased mongrel in the alley mm-hmm. that's not that's not stephen king words right that's right. that's crime novel words uh you know dead dog in alley <laughs> dead dog in right gutter. uh <laughs> but uh i just like that i like all of those like george stark thinking about what he's doing sections. They're, they're really good and they're kind of Kingian that like we've talked about this a million times, right? But King is really good at taking like a little slice of a 2d or a 1d character and then having them look at the world. And then you get characterization of the world through that. And that happens a few times in this novel. Uh, But I think he's really good at doing the genre in the genre thing here with um, George Stark. We saw, we saw the same thing happen with uh, it's the same trick as Roland in the airplane. Mm-hmm. in the drawing of the three right what if you take this kind of like sci-fi western guy and you put him on an airplane Tudor fish all that kind of stuff you know it's the estrangement that's going on here that makes it work but the estrangement that's happening here is that george stark's in one type of story and is thinking about the world in terms of revenge and murder and violence and he's looking at a different type of story from the inside mm-hmm. i think that's fun i think king's good at that yeah uh
0: yeah i i i Agree, right? That was another thing I really noticed in light, that that George Stark thinks about the world as a crime novel. <laughs> right. And Steve is good at it, right? Like, it's, it's actually kind of funny to look at this and have, like, the crime novel be the thing that condenses all of the evil in Thad Beaumont's personality when the past, you know, let's say five years to a decade have seen the big swing to crime novel Steve. So... right.
1: God, I'm, I, I I'm I curious about that, but not really looking forward to it, I would say.
0: I mean, I'm curious if only because like it's clearly a sandbox he's been wanting to play in for a long time and it did mm-hmm. take him a long time.
1: Uh, you're you're 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took a minute to get yeah. there.
0: Uh, what in the Kingiverse? The next segment is uh, where we run through connections between what we just read and other novels uh, that Stephen King has written. Uh, either sort of like thematic pointers or kind of actual echoes of continuity uh, in the Kingian multiverse. Uh, we've already referenced one of these. Uh, there is a woman who—it's actually the woman that the folklore professor is dating. Uh, who Thad That's and right? Yes, right. Thad and his wife hate her. Uh, And whenever she shows up to faculty parties, they uh, complain about her. And she is this like loud, unpleasant woman whose name is Wilhelmina. But she tells everyone, just call me Billy. This is literally uh, the character from Creepshow.
1: Yeah, I don't know why this happens. I, does he just think this is fun? Or uh, yeah. is this based on a person?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of baffling because it is is—it is the exact same character, the exact same phrase. And like notably, in case you didn't listen to the Creepshow episode, like this character gets eaten by a monster. So <laughs> it's just like we went to another world in the multiverse where this woman didn't get eaten by a monster, but she's just as unpleasant and despised by everyone around her.
1: Yeah, I don't because the the he's not the guy, right? Like I, the I don't
0: think so because um, like the character's name is like Delessips
1: in in uh, what do you call it? In the dark half. In the dark half, his name and his name is. I got it right here in front of me. I'm gonna look. Bite marks on Mike's shoe. Oh dear God! I'm looking at the thing. Uh, yeah, Wilma call me billy an hour later at, at amberson hall uh northrup this is last name so yeah no. mm-hmm. yeah wilma northrup has been struck exceedingly drunk and not for the first time yeah i think steve just thinks this is funny okay uh, the next connection, obviously,
0: uh, is Castle Rock. This is another Castle Rock story. Uh, and specifically, the this is a weird thing to think about and notice, I guess, right? Is that uh, we're getting introduced to the character of Alan Pangmorn here, who is going to become more important in the next couple books we read. Um, he's going to be a protagonist in Needful Things. Uh, and... I don't know if this was necessarily planned. Like we are actually at the end of Castle Rock, right? There are three stories that form the the end of the Castle Rock cycle, uh, and it's the dark half. It's the Sun Dog from Nightmares and uh, Four Past Midnight, um, and the Needful Things is like the quote unquote last Castle Rock story. Um, and so weirdly enough, like we get a lot about Alan Pangborn in this book that you would scratch your head and be like, why are we learning so much about this sheriff? Except it all, it all pays the dividends later on when you read Needful Things. Steve is like playing this really interesting, like long game with Alan Pangborn. Um, and I'm interested in seeing how, like when I read these books originally, I read them totally out of order. I read Needful Things before I read The Dark Half. Right. So I'm interested in seeing how it uh, actually moves in this way, right? Progressing in the order that they were published.
1: Uh, y- Yeah, I, I, you, it's really funny that, uh, what do you call it? Um, Needful Things is so like impactful for you. Because mm-hmm. I read that book and I think I read it one time and there is, I don't remember jack shit about it.
0: <laughs> I remember that like the evil guy. Yeah. I think I just remember it because, like, I'm a big fan of the of the town novels, right? right? Like, that's a mode that I really like Stephen King working in. Uh, it's a mode, like, not just Stephen King, right? Like, that's a style of novel that I like. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. You heard uh,
1: it here first,
0: folks. <laughs> Michael Lutz loves a town. Mm-hmm. I, I love me a town, maybe even a county. Yeah. Uh, then the next kind of weird king thing thing here uh, is that this is not the last time we're going to see Thad Beaumont, or rather hear about him. Um, we are going to get periodic updates on Thad Beaumont's life uh, from this point forward in a couple of other novels, and uh, things don't really go well for him. Uh, as I said earlier on, this, this novel takes kind of a surprisingly bleak turn at the ending, uh, and how that works out is, we've already talked about some of it, that... Um, Uh, Liz sees uh, Thad and George Stark together and has this moment of realization of, like, oh, they're the same guy. And as you already said, Cameron, like, does the does George Stark ever really go away? And Alan Pangborn, like, makes this explicit in his own interior monologue, right, where he, like, is Mm -hmm. looking at them at the end after everything has happened. And he's like... I don't know if this woman is going to be able to, you know, love him in the way that she did before, now that she's kind of seen the stuff inside of him out and walking around on its own. Uh, He thinks that to himself, and then the final scene, like the final lines of the novel, are Pangborn having helped them set fire to their house, uh, and... Uh, Thad sees the pages, the burning manuscript pages that he was writing with George Stark. Right, they were writing the new George Stark novel together, um, and he sees those burning pages. Uh, and you know, Alan Pingborn sees them too, and he's and he says, and I'm going to read this here. Good, he thought, and began to walk up the driveway toward Liz and the babies with his head down. Behind him, Thad Beaumont slowly raised his hands and placed them over his face. He stood there like that for a long time. So the novel ends with, like, you know, the implication being that Thad is, like, actually regretting having destroyed that manuscript and sort of questioning, like, getting rid of George Stark.
1: Yeah. Or you think he's crying there? Yeah. Yeah interesting. Yeah. I didn't know how to take it. I I think it's a delightfully
0: ambiguous ending. Well, I guess yeah, it should be I in the moment of publication this would have been delightfully ambiguous, uh but Steve takes this in a direction. Like I said, we're going to we're going to have some mm. check-ins with Thad in a couple of future books.
1: Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I it's been a long time since I've read it. Mm-hmm. But a little preview of a thing going forward isn't Secret Window just this book again? <laughs> uh
0: Yes. Actually, yes. Uh, more or less. Slightly different yeah. in how it sets up the game board, uh, but the pieces right. are all basically the same, I would say.
1: Interesting. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got another segment called Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, where we talk about the songs that appear in the Stephen King novels. Uh, and some of them, there's like 15 billion, but it, it appears there's just one yeah, in, this, I- in this one.
0: I was looking, there are a couple of places where bands are referenced. At one point, someone is playing Guns N' Roses, but no song mm-hmm. is named. There is only one song that I found that was uh, given a name. And it is Bob Dylan's John Wesley Harding.
1: I, uh, I didn't listen to it. I, did you uh, listen to
0: it? I did listen to it. Okay.
1: Well, let me give my rating. Okay. Unheard. <laughs> you still got to give it a star rating.
0: Half I a thought, star. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, also half a star.
1: <laughs> All right. Good. Great. Yeah, All right. Yeah.
0: Like but, uh, good. Uh, good segment. John Wesley Harding. More like John Wesley hardly can stand to listen to this.
1: More like uh, John Wesley toneless. <laughs> <laughs> John Wesley can't carry a tune uh
0: thad th- thad sings this song to himself uh to try to like block his like psychic communication with Stark, which is just also another thing from the Tommy just gonna point that out as well
1: Oh it is yeah. uh and also uh kind of a precursor to the uh the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane mm, yeah, we'll get that mm-hmm. in a couple books and and that's kind of it uh <laughs> next month. <laughs> I know. I I'm so regretful <laughs> that we made this choice.
0: I am so sad.
1: You made I'm this physically dis- sad. I know. <sighs> I know that I contributed. Have I argued for this to happen? Uh, but you know, we've seen the meme. Me reaping, me sowing. Mm-hmm. I'm reaping the whirlwind here.
0: <sighs> Next month, we will be reading 1990s The Stand, complete and uncut.
1: I got to reach out to Kirk Hamilton. <laughs> I got to send <laughs> Kirk an email. <laughs> Kirk's supposed to come back for the, uh, for the bonus ode. Oh, we yeah. We'll be watching next month. We'll be watching for the bonus ode for the stand, complete, and uncut. We will be watching the miniseries. The, the new stand. miniseries. The new miniseries. I have my Blu rays right here, mm-hmm. uh, ready to go. Yeah. They didn't uh, come out in 4K, I don't think. Oh, bummer, I guess. Yeah, for me. Mm. I want to see rain. I want to see the. Uh, Canadian Tuxedo himself.
0: (laughs) I hope they do give him a Canadian Tuxedo, just as a shout out. I have no idea really what's going on in the uh, the remake, uh, or like the remake the second series, so that's going to be interesting mm-hmm. next month. This month, just by the way, to mention it again, uh, if you go to patreon.com slash touch and support us, you will get access to all of our previous bonus episodes, including the bonus episode with Kirk when we talked about the 1994 Stand miniseries, and when you are listening to this, if you're listening to it on the day that it drops, there will be an episode where Cameron and I are talking about 1993's film version of The Dark Half uh, directed by George Romero. Romero um so Mm -hmm. again that's me that I almost thought the the Billy thing was intended to be a reference to Romero but it doesn't seem like Mm. it it doesn't seem like he preemptively purchased the rights uh for this book so I I really don't know how that happened anyway I've watched the movie it's interesting you haven't uh we're going to record it soon and I'm sure we'll have a good discussion I will tell you there's a there's something that I find very exciting about the film, and it's not The Sparrows.
1: I haven't seen it yet. I, we are, the episode will be out, uh, but we, we have not recorded the episode yet. And uh, actually I actually have to watch the movie tonight, so uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited for it. Uh, also, if you go to, uh, if you listen to this on Apple Podcast, number one, you got to give us five stars. Click that five star button. Easy. Easiest little thing you've ever done. We're currently sitting at 4.9 out of five which is annoying. Oh, dang. So hit that five. Get us up to the full five. And if you leave us a five star, if you leave a five star rating, leave a review. I'll tell you, I'll read uh, maybe it on the show. Here's a fun one. This is from Fierce Turtle. Not turtle, but Turtle. Uh, I was born in 1974, the year Carrie came out. While I am not the biggest King fan by far, the sequential nature of the podcast, plus the historical and political context the hosts bring to the discussion, make the listening experience a bit like reading a King-in version of a book about my own life. Sadly, I am beginning to suspect it may actually be a horror novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a, uh. I don't know if I read this one or not, but I'm going to read it again. It's from X-File Mandroid doing it for Steve. No one can stop Cameron from talking about Cindy Lauper. <laughs> I'll do it. She's unusual. So oh, well, unusual.
0: that's great. Uh, so yeah, uh consider like leaving us reviews and supporting us. Thank you so much if you already are. Please enjoy those bonus episodes. Uh mm-hmm. and meet us here in a month when we are talking about uh however many billion episodes of that mini series that they made, isn't it like 10 or something?
1: I think it's 10. It's a good okay. solid 10 hours. So if okay. you think that uh if you don't currently support the show and you're getting ready for us to watch 10 hours, of a thing. To talk about it. I'm going to listen to some commentaries and shit. I'm going to read interviews. I'm going to read think pieces about it. And have like fine grained disagreements about them. I'm getting wild on this one y'all. <laughs> if that sounds interesting to you. Go to patreon.com slash touch. It's in the description below. Click on that thing. Support us. Five dollars a month. It's a cup of coffee a month essentially. Uh, it's pump- it, Here's the deal y'all. It's pumpkin spice latte season. Mm-hmm. I need my latte. I went to I went to the coffee store today, the locally owned mm-hmm. coffee store, mm-hmm. coffee shop, and mm-hmm. I said I want because normally I'm just a black coffee person, but I mm-hmm. said I want a honey cinnamon latte because it's that season. They have a little display. <laughs> it's like all the pumpkin stuff and not pumpkin stuff. And they said, <laughs> uh, and she looked at me this this employee who's been there for about five months or so. She's worked there all summer. She's seen me several times a week, and she looked at me and she said, oh, for you? For you? For you? Because I normally, 99% of the time, I'm getting a black coffee. (laughs) You know, I'm Rob Rob Zachney. I'm saying, we got food at home. (laughs) One black coffee, please. Okay? That's me and my needs. You got to help me out by giving us five dollars a month <laughs> uh we'll also have some cool then maybe the announcement should happen before then but we got some cool other cool stuff coming up too as we're heading to the scary month uh which we are in uh right now yeah when you're listening but, to this yeah right so anyway okay we'll see you on the next episode goodbye michael who are we do it for
0: we're doing it for steve